0: Winsome runs her family property, Mogregai and Parkmead, just north of Dubbo, where she's busy rebuilding her Hereford Semantile cross cattle herd after the recent drought. In today's episode, we hear how Winsome has already pursued a successful career in training and the corporate world, and how she continues to draw on her off-farm income to help achieve her on-farm goals. With soil and water management at the forefront of her decision-making, Winsome has connected with many levels of government and industry to achieve a number of erosion control projects to help enhance the health of her farm and for the local community downstream. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer, Rowan Leach, sat down with Winsome to talk about her foray back into agriculture.
1: Winsome, it's lovely to be out here at Mogrigai and Park Mead. Welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks, Rowan. Can you tell me a little bit about your farming operation here?
2: I'm located just north of Dubbo, and as you mentioned, two properties, Mogrigai and Park Mead. Altogether, that's 2,860 acres, which over a period of time would have been considered a large holding, but these days is actually considered quite small. I was born and raised here, but the ownership of the property goes back to the early 1900s with my grandparents, who at the time had the original Mogrigai property and increased their holding to the south by buying another property. When my parents came along in the 1950s, the property was split. They took on the original Mogrigai property and bought further land to the north, which was Park Mead, and that's where we are today. Traditionally it's been dryland farming, so always grazing and cropping.
1: What sort of enterprise do you have?
2: Here today I've got beef cattle, mostly breeding and fattening, and generally speaking Hereford's with the Simmental bull. There's a few others around as well, that's the general group.
1: When we went for a little drive this morning, probably some of the quietest heifers I think I've ever seen, you nearly needed to push them out of the way to drive through the gate.
2: That's part of what I do is keep them quiet and I don't have any dogs on the place and if we're getting them in the yards or moving them to paddocks, often it's just a matter of opening the gates and they follow rather than being pushed. So that's the preferred way I like to handle them.
1: So why do you need your cattle so quiet? Is it to do with management?
2: I think initially it's just well-being. I think they're like people in many ways and I think we don't like a lot of pressure. But also it's about the product. So anything that we can do to keep the animals in the best condition without any bruising in particular is worthwhile by the time you're ready to sell.
1: How many cattle do you run here?
2: At the moment, because we've come out of a three-year drought, I've been gradually buying some cattle and breeding up. So I've really only got around 100 at the moment. But in the meantime, I've taken on some adjustments. So I've got another 100 head on adjustment here at the moment.
1: And you can't see them at the moment because the grass is (laughs) (laughs) up over your head.
2: Yes, that's right. Even the ones that are here on adjustment will eventually go to Victoria. And they've stayed longer than the original plan because the grass kept on growing.
1: And so what will your numbers be eventually, do you think? Will you run it quite conservatively or are you planning to build a lot higher?
2: Yeah, I'd like to build a lot higher and I'd aim for 200 cows and then at any one time they might have calves or I'd have some steers and heifers on the property as well. But it's a flexible number and I think it's just going to depend on the seasons and the grass and what the property can take at any one time.
1: That's what I like to hear, Winston. Changing your numbers based on your feed base—that's yes. perfect answer. Thank you. So, how did you get into farming?
2: So, I was born and raised on the property, and went to school in Dubbo. And like a lot of country kids, went away for education and different opportunities. And also at the time, just the economics of farming wasn't going to support any more than my parents, who were both working the property. At the time, both of them working outdoors. My father passed away first about 20 years ago, and then my mother more recently about four years ago. She kept the cattle going whilst she was here, right to the very end, actually. And then after that, yeah, the opportunity presented itself to come back here to the property and start it all over again. Mind you, that was in the drought and about uh, going back just to 2017. But after about two years, I decided to take up the opportunity and the seasons improved since then, which essentially just means it's rained.
1: So you still have farm income?
2: Uh, Yes, I do. Part of it is to make that transition to become more full-time in terms of the farm. But you can't be silly about some things, particularly because I was coming out of drought and there wasn't anything here to sell. So it just made a lot of sense to hang on to the off-farm income.
1: And so what is that? Uh, Yeah. So
2: uh, so I have two hats. I design and develop training courses and I also document systems, policies, procedures for businesses, particularly larger corporate businesses. So it's all contract work or project work.
1: Does any of that apply to your farming enterprise?
2: Well, probably the closest I've come to working was for the New Zealand Dairy Corporation at one time the closest I've come to working for an agriculture related business. So I guess in that case it did apply. But I think also just some general things. So I understand systems and policies and principles and I know that they can often be a decision in a point in time or just an overarching goal or plan that you're aiming for. So some of those principles have definitely come across some of those practices.
1: What would you say that your plan or your principles are for your farm here at Mogokai?
2: Part of the opportunity that I was presented with was that there's already a lot here. So over the ownership from my grandparents and parents, there's a lot of fencing that's in good condition. There's a lot of dams that have been built, bores that are on the place with reticulated trough systems. There's grain storage. There's lots of sheds. And it's all been well maintained, even through the cropping years, because practices back then were to plant legumes with cereal crops at the same time, and certainly to use superphosphate to try and keep the soils healthy or fertile. So I'm actually trying to operate, well, I'm going to only be operating grazing. I'm not planning on doing any cropping. And so What I'm interested in mostly is the soil and the water. And I think if I can do whatever I can to look after the soil and retain water across the property through contour banks and dams and whatnot, I'll do that and the cattle then will pretty much look after themselves.
1: Those are probably two key things that if you look after those, it's fairly easy from there.
2: Yes, yes.
1: So you said you took over from your mother who farmed until the bitter end. Yes. And so taking over from someone quite elderly, what was the condition of the farm like when you first took over?
2: Yes, actually it was pretty good. She certainly kept the maintenance up in terms of fencing and troughs and pipes that are on the place. But we were in drought, so the place was looking fairly dry and the cattle were being sold down at the time. That came to a bit of a halt yeah immediately after she died until a few things got sorted out, and so we needed to destock. We did feed some breeders, but eventually pretty much destocked all the way back. So though having very few livestock here and being in drought, all things considered, it was left in pretty good condition.
1: So you said land and water are definitely your priorities in your business. What have been your priorities in restoring the farm and looking after the farm?
2: One of the first things that I did was obviously uh, in my head had a great big list of all the things that I wanted to do. And having that list was a good thing because then what happened was opportunities come along and sometimes you can't always plan the timing the way you like it because if an opportunity presents itself, you've got to take it up. So local land services had a project running to try and do something about erosion that was on any of the properties. So I had identified some erosion already on the property and one of the first things I did was have some earthworks done to correct some erosion, slow water down and I've since fenced off that area and it's looking quite good at the moment because I've had rain and the new dam that got built is full and it's pretty much all grassed up around it.
1: Those are still planning to be ongoing? Those Yeah, so
2: there's another area that I'd like to get some more earthworks done. The other thing I've been doing is from the perspective of the livestock, and I guess I've had the good fortune in some respects to have low numbers of cattle at the moment because it means that the paddocks are well rested after the drought and they've had a lot of rain. And I'm putting in practice rotational grazing and I've been able to do that quite well because I've had the low numbers and paddocks have rested, and I've been able to move cattle around onto fresh paddocks fairly frequently, so that's something else that I've tried to put in place as well. It was always a practice that was conducted here, and it was always flexible as well because depending on the season, you knew that you could carry more or less cattle and you could move them more or less often depending on where the grass was.
1: That sounds pretty expensive to be getting into this restoration of gullies and soil conservation and those sorts of things with minimal livestock turnover and you're trying to rebuild your numbers. How have you achieved these goals?
2: Some of it's been with the use of some off-farm income and it's something I think I might have mentioned to you before, Rowan, on the road where I live There's a lot of family names that have been here for a lot of years. But as time goes on, the ownership of the land is more and more becoming what I call operators rather than pure farmers. And so what that means is that people are purchasing properties around here that have off-farm income and they're, like me, able to take some of that income and put it into the property to try and improve some of the things that we want to do. But at the end of the day, the operators that are around here have other businesses or other things going on in their life. And on one hand, it's good because the investment's in the properties. But on the other hand, they're not always here.
1: And so, have grants also been a part of that process?
2: Yeah. So I went looking for support um, because there was lots of things I wanted to do, and I knew that there was help out there. So. One of the first entities or businesses that I got in contact with was Local Land Services and it was through an erosion program where I was able to get the earthworks done and that Local Land Services were able to contribute to that project. So provided I spent a certain amount of money, they were able to contribute to it. And then the second project that I got was a private enterprise run by Gallagher Electric Fencing, together with Landcare, who each year grant a sum of money for electric fencing for a particular project. So I've won that project. And again, it's a co-contribution type situation. Gallagher put in the fencing materials and myself's put in the rest. And I've been able to fence off the earthworks and the repair work that I got done.
1: And has your background in projects and your off-farm income, has that helped in your looking for projects and being able to apply for them?
2: Yes, it have, But I have to say it's a minefield because you're looking at federal government funding, state government funding, local council funding and private enterprise funding. And another example of some support that I've been able to garner is the local council in Dubbo who received funding for African boxthorn control. And once again, provided I had already started to do that, they were able to come out and assist with one particular area of boxthorn to try and get that under control. So yeah, it helps me look for support and if possible funding. It helps me write the applications and it helps me contact the organisation and ask Questions about how one goes about getting some of that funding. Sometimes I do think how other farmers get on if they don't have some of those skills that I've learned elsewhere to be able to make those applications and, if possible, win some of those applications. I actually think it's quite difficult.
1: I think it might be very handy, better halves perhaps. Yes. (laughs) Have you got any tips or advice for people that are applying for grants?
2: Yeah. I've managed to get myself onto a number of mailing lists, which will often send you a list or information about a program that's coming up or funding that's coming up. So you've got to know that the funding's out there in the first place. Sometimes it's advertised in newspapers, but if you have email and you're able to subscribe to some newsletters or some services that will let you know about what funding's coming up, then that's also good. The other thing is to try and get to know the people where the funding comes from. So at the moment, the federal government has a lot of programs and initiatives under the future drought funding program. And to even know that that exists and then try and find who the local contact is, which I also have done, they then were able to help me at least identify where some funding might be available. Sometimes it's not relevant. And sometimes it's a rather difficult thing to apply for. But usually people in those roles and people at local land services, for example, or through land care can help you with those applications.
1: That's a great plug for <laughs> the future drought fund. And I swear I'm not feeding Winsome any lines yes. here. Winsome, can you tell me about the Mogulguy Creek Land Care Group?
2: Yeah, sure. So the Mogulguy Land Care Group probably started 25 or 30 years ago. And they were able to achieve some great work on the Mogagai Creek itself with fencing off areas of erosion and planting it. And the group that got it started all that time ago were farmers in the local area, and they were very active with the Mogagai Creek. Today, they're nearly all over 70. And the whole group really just came to a bit of a standstill. I think they completed the major work, they have funds to maintain that work, but because of age and because of lack of time, the group pretty much came to a standstill. So I started to investigate who was a member, where things were at, and also people had left the district. And what I came down to was two boxes of paperwork and that was Mogrigai Landcare Group. And there were no meetings being held and there was no paperwork being completed. It really did had come to a standstill. So I got onto a few people who were the members and we did hold a meeting. The other thing I did was I tried to contact landcare coordinators in the area. And I was fortunate to get onto one of the local coordinators out of Narromine who came and gave me a hand. And he came along to our very first meeting to kick things along again. We had that meeting, we elected office bearers, the two boxes were given to somebody who was going to sort out where that was at, and in particular, our tax status. And then the pandemic hit. And so we haven't had a meeting for two years. (laughs) So it's been a bit of a stop start.
1: Yeah. But do you think that's been worthwhile, that getting the community back firing again?
2: Yes, I think so. There are a couple of younger generation from the original members that are interested. There's certainly work to be done in the area. So it's in need of earthworks or erosion works or erosion prevention works, plantings and that type of thing. It is, however, very difficult to get everyone together and everyone on the same page. And one of the overwhelming factors is the administration of the land care and those two boxes and keeping all of that up to date because a lot of the original members aren't necessarily computer literate either. That's something which I think at some point in the future I'd like to see changed. I think there should be some administrative support provided because all the farmers really want to do around here is get back on with their farming. They don't have time or the skills necessary, the computer skills, to be able to sit down and get everything operating at a desk
1: So the group's really been about trying to find information and updated with what's happening?
2: Yes. And also to bring some currency back to it. So what are other land care groups doing? What types of funding are about for what types of projects? And how do we get that funding and get everyone involved? Because sometimes there may be an issue on one property that affects another three. The other three may not find the time to be involved in that particular project and then that can be seen as one person taking all the money. There's a lot of those issues to overcome, but generally speaking, I think we're still missing or we still need somebody, probably most land care groups need somebody to be the driver of it.
1: Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? In those community groups, yeah, just to have someone that picks it up and runs with it.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: But in your role with the Island Landcare, you've actually come along to quite a few meetings with the Central West Natural Resource Management Group. How have those meetings been?
2: I enjoy those meetings. They usually have a pretty full agenda and there's some very interesting people. Most of the meetings have been via online video conferencing but there's some important groups there and there are some people who are doing some great things and it's the peer groups that I'm seeing and what their activities they're actually doing if and when and where they get some funding to do that and some groups seem to be really firing on all fours and it's getting that momentum going with the other land care groups that I think is quite difficult. And that's where I come back to it. I think it would be good if there was some administrative support.
1: And so have you gotten any good ideas or connections from attending these meetings?
2: Yeah, lots of good ideas. And yes, connections too, because it means that I can contact people and say that I've been at the meetings for the natural resource management. And so that's recognised. And so you've immediately broken the ice with that person. And the ones that I have sought out and talked to have been really helpful even if it's just a matter of giving me the next phone number for somebody to call because they think they can help. So that's often how it works.
1: Yeah. It's not what you know, it's who you know in agriculture quite often. (laughs) And so you've got a big project with your fellow landholders that you're trying to fence off the Mogagai National Park.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: Can you tell me a bit about what your dream is there?
2: (laughs) Yeah. So there's five of us who back on to the Mogagai National Park. It's a park that's generally locked and only bushwalkers or anyone to go in there needs special permission. Unfortunately, there's no water in there whatsoever. If it rains, water will flow through it, of course, but there's no water in there. So any of the animals or bird life that are in there are coming out to our properties for water in the first place. And generally that's adding grazing pressure onto what we're all trying to do from a farming perspective. We've had a couple of goes to get some funding to build an exclusion fence and we haven't been successful. But back to a tip for funding, we've got a lot of paperwork now that we just keep reusing every time a a bucket of money comes out, which is useful. But we haven't been successful for one reason and another. On one occasion, we were told to put in for funding because in the previous year they had funded exclusion fencing. And so we did. But in the year that we put in for, they decided to fund works to do with wild dogs. And that was the priority. So it's not so much that our application wasn't a winning application, but the priorities of the people who were awarding the funding changed.
1: So you just say it's about persistence and having, (laughs) having that plan ready to go.
2: Yes. And it's also being able to talk with national parks. And because we've had several attempts at trying to get this Unfortunately, the staff at National Parks changes, so we end up going one step forward and two steps back sometimes, but we do need to have them on board to clear the fence line and to, if possible, contribute to the exclusion fence. But also, they do need to work something out about getting a water supply in the National Park if they want to keep it the way it is. So the problems for us are mostly, in more recent times, the problems for us have been goats that are coming out of the National Park. But also for general grazing pressure, we've got native animals coming out of the national park too.
1: So do you have any interaction with LLS's biosecurity officers in terms of those pests coming out of the national park?
2: Yes, I've certainly raised it with them. And again, in turn, they've helped me identify who to speak with or any funding that might come along. With the biosecurity, there's a group of us around Not necessarily adjoining the national park, but in this area, who have been running a fox bait program for about 20 years. And even those of us who don't carry sheep still put the fox baits out. They're for all of our livestock, of course, but in the main, it's for people who have lambs. So that's something that we generally do about twice a year. And in more recent times, the discussion around foxes has turned to wild dogs because, as I understand it, they're getting closer to the Dubbo area. Even insofar as the last time we put fox bakes out, it was a stronger bait that would also work with a wild dog just in case they were coming into our area. And that's been a very successful program because the biosecurity officers have kept on coming out and we've kept the program going and everyone's kept on baiting. And it really has reduced the numbers. And again, not so much for myself, but I hear it from the people who have lambs around me.
1: You're really community minded here, Winston, like you've (laughs) actually not seen that much benefit yourself in this fox baiting, but you're doing it to sort of keep your neighbours happy. And how important is that, keeping your neighbours and your community all working to a goal?
2: I think it's important. I think it's interesting where that line sits, because if I think about the people who are along the Mogrigai Road, there's all sorts of enterprises going on, be it different types of livestock. So typically sheep and cattle. But then everything from feedlot to studs, to someone running commercial cattle, to someone running fat lambs, somebody growing wool, everyone's got a very different enterprise. And there's a line there where we don't need to know everyone's business, but with boundary fencing and something that's widespread like a fox problem, it's important, I think, that we get along to those meetings. Sometimes you don't see people in between time because everyone's busy and it's not as if you're talking to everyone over the fence every day.
1: Finally, Winsome, before I let you go, I'd like to ask as my final question, what are the big issues facing ag at the moment?
2: Look, uh, I don't know that I could put it down to one big issue. It's a very complex industry and it's become modernised and we're dealing with a modern world of trade. And so something in the relative distance, even Recent times, the Russia and Ukraine build up on the border or some of the changes that China's making to our trade deals, all of those things that happen such a long way away can impact our businesses here. Some years ago, I went to the United States for a holiday and I went to Chicago and I went to the Chicago Board of Trade. It was open for tourists to learn and understand it. And on the day, they were trading futures in grains and pigs and cattle and all sorts of things. And it wasn't until I got there and I realized how out of control some of the things are that we can and can't do. In that respect, we're relying on a lot of government market forces and some industry associations to fly the flag and get some things right for us. The other thing that I think is getting interesting is it's just the cost of operating farming. And whilst I'm aiming for a model of low inputs and high profit by running cattle who are eating grass and taking the water from the property, anyone who's trying to grow crops and buy machinery and fuel those machines, the costs are getting quite high. So I think that's quite an interesting situation that seems to be ongoing. Some of the other issues are then getting down to the actual product level. There's quite a movement to prove the provenance of products these days. And if you were to go to a capital city and read a menu in a restaurant, you can no longer order steak and salad. You need to be reading where the steak's from and where the greens in the salad have come from. So that's become very important. And hopefully that's something that we can pick up on in the future. I think it's a point of difference that we have here in Australia and many other countries are doing the same thing, but it's a point of difference at a product level. I'd like to see us take that challenge up as well and expand that whole idea and really narrow the market to which we're feeding.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer. That's a bit of a call to arms for the advocates out there, the ag advocates. But I think if you keep managing your land and your water here on farm, then that's the real outcome and the real thing that we can control. Winsome, thanks for joining me today and hope you enjoyed Seeds for Success.
2: Thanks, Rowan. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.